Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. We've got a really solid lineup today, but before we get there, a few events to tell you about. On October 2nd at the Vancouver Club, we have Navigating the U.S. for Business. We have BIV's expert discussion panel. It's going to be examining the best practices to optimize opportunity in times of geopolitical challenge and maybe steer away from some of those difficult straits. And also coming up at the Vancouver Club, October 9th, it's Cannabis Year One. Another expert panel is going to delve into the opportunities and challenges that have been going on this past year and provide some insights. You can find out more about those events at BIV.com slash events. Now, kicking off today's show, Steve Eccles. He's the Dean of Northeastern University's New Vancouver Campus, which is opening early next year. He's going to dive into how the city's emerging tech sector makes it a ripe target for developing talents. Then, Macmillan LLP associate Ravi Baines joins the show to talk about a new governance model that's sweeping American corporations and how it appears to be maybe mirroring what we already have here in Canada. Now, let's talk to Steve Eccles. So a few months ago, we welcomed onto the show Northeastern University President Joseph Ayun, who had a fascinating conversation about the future of the workforce. Now the Boston-based university will be opening its newest campus here in Vancouver early next year, and I'm happy to have on the show Steve Eccles. He is the Dean of Northeastern University's Vancouver campus. Steve, thanks for joining us on the program today. Hi, Tyler. You're welcome. So I got to ask, uh, you know, why Vancouver and why is now the right time for Northeastern to make its presence known here on this side of Canada? Yeah, so Northeastern did uh, a lot of due diligence. It's got a number of global campuses uh, already established. And Vancouver obviously became of interest simply because, as we all know, uh, there's a significant uh, growth here in Vancouver as a global technology hub. Uh, we're, we're reaching that that sort of situation where we're, we're starting to truly scale uh, tech businesses, and we've also got a diverse economy, and we've got a region where people want to come to work, to study, uh, to live, and to grow. So it, it ticked all of the boxes in terms of an attractive place to launch a university. Uh, not least, also there's a, there's a strong demand for talent here. Uh, which a, uh, a reputable university like Boston uh, can help meet in partnership with the rest of the community and be closely integrated into that need. Well, tell me a little bit, uh, just for those that may not be familiar, what is going to be the focus when you guys start offering programming in January? Yeah, we, we're going to uh, clearly target what I just referenced, which is this uh, in the tech sector, there, there's a clearly highlighted need uh, for uh, skills in, in computer science, for example, uh, in, in AI. And so we've calibrated, like Northeastern does everywhere, through its experiential learning focus and through its industry integration focus. We've calibrated to that need. And, you know, my colleague here, we have two people working at Northeastern Vancouver right now. We're, we're integrated with industry. We've built up those partnerships over a number of years. So uh, our objective is to fit those immediate needs in our initial strategy and focus on computer science and then consider other programs, including um, AI, including uh, visual analytics, 
And then we're also, uh, we've got to take account not just of what I would call conventional programs. I know conventional programs will be primarily master's programs at the graduate level. We also see a need uh, for workforce transformation support. We have an eclectic, diverse industry here, Tyler. And those industries to stay competitive have to seize the opportunities to transform their workforces and be more productive and more competitive. So there are objectives. And finally, to be community integrated. We don't want to do this alone. We want to be part of a solution and, and a partner to industry, uh, to other post-secondary institutions and to the community in general. There, there are objectives in the nutshell. Yeah, you know, I, I think about the BC economy, and it is often considered to be the mo- most diverse in all of Canada. It's one of the reasons why we weathered, say, a, uh, the financial uh, crisis back 10 years ago, much better than other provinces. And it is a transforming workforce, as you said so before. What do you think about kind of the prospects of retraining a lot of these people as we see, say, technology change the nature of our jobs, the nature of work? How can you guys even play a part in this, even if we're speaking this on a, about this topic on a broader level? Yeah, we believe in this, uh, this idea of shared prosperity at Northeastern. Uh, from my perspective, uh, it, that aligned very closely with what I wanted to do when I joined Northeastern a year ago. Uh, we need to create a participative economy here. And I know that aligns with everybody we talk to here. It doesn't matter which company that they're in. Uh, certainly, it's a government mandate to make sure that we uh, we really drive a broadly diversified uh, uh, bunch of sectors that are going to succeed on the world stage. So it's not just about the tech sector, which is hugely important to us. It's about creating those linkages. And it's a cliche to say that virtually every company within time will be a tech company, but there's more than a grain of truth to that. Uh, mining oil and gas forestry to adopt principles of AI to transform their businesses, whether it's through digital digital twinning, the likes of the work that Finger Food is doing. These are important things, not just the scale in terms of company capabilities, but how do you build the talent pipelines and how do you redeploy and grow those skills in the current workforce to seize that opportunity? That is going to be a huge focus for us. And we're already having really great conversations with industry to create the partnerships to make that happen. Well, you name dropped a a notable company here, Finger Food Studios. And it's making me think about kind of collaborations that are, I guess, on the forefront uh, here in uh, British Columbia. I think about maybe Canada's digital technology super cluster, which is bringing together a lot of different companies as well as post-secondary institutions what do you think kind of the opportunity is presenting itself and whether Northeastern can get involved with this super cluster that it's going to be fascinating over the next decade to see what kinds of products, what kinds of collaborations come out of it? Well, we uh, very quickly became uh, an associate a member of the super cluster. Uh, there are many conversations going on, as you're, you're probably aware. Uh, this is truly an exciting opportunity. And it's an exceptional example of why this community is uh, is going to succeed because we succeed when we're working together. And so when I look at the supercluster, I look beyond that. At, um, the likes of AINBC were a founding sponsor of the AI, the AI network uh, for BC. Uh, our friends at BC Tech, of course, were members there. And when you combine uh, the BC Business Council as well, suddenly you've got this uh, cluster of partnerships which are communicating strongly together and uh, networking partners as well. So this is what 
gets us excited at Northeastern. We've been wel- welcomed into that community. It's not just about securing memberships and associations. It's then about implementation and doing something with that partnership to target resources. And I think there's been probably many occasions I can think of when, you know, often you can find that partners can be a little splintered and going off in different directions. I really sense for the first time there's a coordinated response here and being driven by initiatives like the Supercluster. And we're, we're starting to make real headway. We're, we're very, very pleased to be part of that effort. Yeah, I'll be honest. Uh, when we first heard word of the supercluster, I was more in like wait and see mode. Let's see how this goes. But every subsequent time that I, I speak to the people involved and I get updates on what's going on, I'm like, oh, everybody here is very, very serious. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that goes forward. One of the other things, uh, you just mentioned the Business Council of British Columbia, and they've been leading the way with regards to the Cascadia Innovation Corridor, uh, You know, further connecting us with Seattle and to an, another degree, uh, Portland. But uh, what do you think about kind of the opportunities that you can seize on if you're looking at Cascadia as a whole? I just think back to say it was Easter long weekend. I was taking a trip down to Seattle, walking around downtown. And there I, I saw it, Northeastern University campus right there in Seattle. Uh, what do you take on, say, Cascadia in, in the future there? Well, to have uh, uh, a campus either side of the border in Vancouver and Seattle is obviously close, a, a great integration with what we want to achieve uh, in, that, in that region, Tyler. Uh, you know, I think the, we're all excited about that opportunity to create a, reach, a truly regional global capability because in the world of global super tech hubs, you know, the, the race for talent, the race for procurement, the race for uh, partnerships is, uh, is intense right now. And so to bring those capabilities together and for us as a university to have campuses either side to create cross-border collaboration, student mobility, um, uh, partnerships with the other universities as well as companies, certainly that is true globally competitive scale. The Seattle campus, I think in a matter of six years, has grown to over a thousand students with an emphasis on uh, tech um, master's degrees a huge supplier to uh, the Seattle uh, industry. And we've just got that opportunity to uh, partner into that energy and momentum and then truly integrate with the likes of uh, not just Microsoft and Amazon, but also bring the benefits of that scaling uh, to our more nascent capabilities here and uh, the other side of the border too. So these are these are good times to collaborate and we're going to be there in October at the, at the uh, Corridors Conference to talk about doing stuff um, uh, and accelerating those actions. So it might be tempting for some of these young students to see what's going on on the other side of the border. And, and oftentimes it's uh, bigger paychecks than what you'll find here in Vancouver. It's just kind of one of those facts right now. How do you kind of work into the equation to get students to stick around, invest in this workforce? How do you, you know, kind of play a part in this retention of talent that's going on? And it's one of the issues that, you know, the community is trying to solve. So our, our sweet spot is to really look at the needs of industry and be closely aligned with that need. And we do that through this experiential learning uh, focus, and that's through co-op, but also other forms of collaboration with industry. But the critical thing is, and when you, when you chatted with our president back in May, uh, this idea of uh, graduates being digitally literate uh, and ready for humanics, this idea of, of uh, graduates being ready for uh, the world of AI, and we're already in it. That's, they're the type of capabilities you need 
to scale businesses. And by scaling businesses, that's how we'll secure talent. Because when businesses get bigger, they get more competitive, more successful, they recruit more talent, and they pay better. And uh, this idea of scaling business is not just about giving them computer science and software engineers. It's about giving them uh, uh, those grads who who have leadership, HR, finance, broader capabilities and operations to really build out and globally grow those businesses. That's what we're going to do in Vancouver. And that's what our educational model is all about. Well, I'll I'll leave you off with this because I I think back to my own personal post-secondary experiences. And one of the things that really stick with me would be, you know, standout faculty members, like the people that really changed the way that I learned and understood concepts and just kind of gave me those skills that I needed to be successful in the workforce. What kind of faculty are you drawing upon it? And how do you see this playing an important part for the success of the school? Yeah, and you, you've nailed it, Tyler, because we all remember those uh, those professors or teachers who, who really made a mark on our lives. And they're the type of people uh, we want to attract. We'll do that in a couple of ways. First of all, we want computer science and tech-focused uh, educators to join, the, join us. And it'll not just be what I would call uh, conventional faculty from universities who are exceptionally good at teaching and learning will also be drawing in capabilities uh, at an industry level through, uh, you know, our close partnerships with industry. We want people who can educate and teach students who are actually uh, living in the world of work right now and can bring those relevant skills. But I also, you, you need to build uh, this a community that draws talent in on uh, in on itself. And you know, my colleague Dr. Bethany Edmonds, who's got a PhD in AI and machine learning, uh, a YWCA Women of Distinction in Education and um, uh, numerous other awards, which are far more than mine. These are the, That's the type of culture that attracts uh, other uh, people more expertise because we're really growing a culture based on, uh, based on quality here and a tight integration with the world of work. Um, so... We're being very select about everybody we bring in uh, to the campus community here. And through that, we're going to be able to attract like-minded people and, and really uh, really uh, set an experience aside for our students, which is as memorable as the one you had. Well, that's excellent. Uh, Steve, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see the opening of this campus and see how it influences kind of the workforce that we see developing here. And uh, we'll, we'll have to keep in touch with regards to that. For now, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're very welcome, Tyler. Thank you. That's Steve Eccles. He is Dean of Northeastern University's Vancouver campus, which will be opening downtown on Georgia Street in January. Now stay with us. Ravi Baines from Macmillan LLP. He joins us after this to talk about big changes coming to corporate governance. Alrighty, so last week we found that number of CEOs, uh, just tons of them down in the United States, they made a pledge to reconsider corporate governance as we know it, at least down south of the border. And our guest today is Ravi Baines. He is an associate at Macmillan LLP, and he has some thoughts, some interesting thoughts about what this means moving forward and maybe how there's kind of a a Canadian connection to a certain degree. Ravi, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. Okay. So we had like, what was it, like 200 CEOs come out last week? Tell me a little bit about what kind of pledge that they were making to us. 
well, last week we had um, close to 181, close to 200 uh, CEOs uh, from an organization called the Business Roundtable, uh, which is an individual focused organization. Unlike larger groups, it is uh, CEOs personally who are a member of that organization uh, come out and issue a statement called uh, the Statement on the Purpose of a Corporation. Uh, this statement outlines, uh, based on uh, their discussions, what is the motive or the animating purpose of the corporation. And interestingly, uh, in this statement, unlike the previous iterations of the statement, uh, they have taken into consideration a number of factors, uh, communities, uh, employees, suppliers, uh, that they hadn't given a lot of attention to previously, and uh, shareholders who historically uh, within the American corporate governance model have had a primacy over these other groups um, uh, were seen by in certain quarters to have been relegated in from their prime, uh, prime position. I'm curious though, like when has this primacy for shareholders been around for? Like it, it didn't actually start this way, you know, if we're thinking about like kind of this start of business, like this has been kind of a, a changing trend. How long has this been going on for in your opinion? So if we just take a step back and understand corporations are governed by their uh, board of directors who set out the overall strategy of the corporation and appoint the management. Um, historically, and even to this day, uh, directors work in the best interests of the corporation. They have certain duties not to be conflicted and uh, have a duty of care. Uh, over uh, During 1970s and 80s, in the uh, American context especially, um, certain ideas took hold and uh, those ideas um, mandated that uh, shareholder directors owe uh, in some, a general duty to act in the best interests of the corporation, but in certain contexts, uh, their duties are redefined and flipped where they have to maximize shareholder value. Those situations included pivotal moments like where a corporation is undergoing a merger or there's a change of control. So they, in that case, they have a duty in the short term to maximize shareholder value. So in the American jurisprudence since then, uh, it has often been seen that at pivotal moments uh, in a change of a control transaction or a merger or a buyout, directors have to maximize shareholder values um, over other competing interests. So I, I guess that begs the question, you know, what kind of impact does that mean for those companies, though? Does that mean that there's more emphasis placed on kind of the short-term outlook versus the long-term, or is it kind of a mix of both depending on what pressures are on these directors? Uh, there, uh, there are varying viewpoints on this, and certainly one of the viewpoints that goes around is um, there is too much pressure on short-term returns. Um, at the end of the day, directors are appointed by the shareholders, and if the investors demand higher short-term returns, high, and they want a higher return on investments, and then directors have to take that into consideration. Um, so, that, and on the other hand. If you're taking a long-term viewpoint into perspective, then you have to factor in the long-term growth of the corporation, uh, generating long-term shareholder value, and you have shareholder groups who are okay with that. So uh, at the end of the day, it's investor expectations and the board of directors uh, managing the organization in sync with those. 
So do you anticipate maybe some resistance from shareholders if they're being told by, you know, 180 companies that they may be holding shares in, uh, look, we like being kind of the ones in charge or having primacy to a certain degree. Do you think that there's going to be any backlash to this? Well, there has been some opposition, uh, for example, Council for Institutional Investors, which is an organization that represents um, um, the interests of pension funds and other large pools of capital. Um, they have come out and uh, issued a statement that doesn't exactly agree with the new statement issued by the business roundtable. Um, from their perspective, uh, management being accountable to the shareholders uh, helps um, implement the agenda and the uh, objective that shareholders have appointed directors for so and also i think some reports indicated there were a few ceos who also did not find the statement but within the business roundtable so i guess there is some opposition so i guess the other question i've got now is why are they coming out and doing this and why are they doing it now do, do you have some thoughts about what the impetus is for this particular pledge that's being made just in this last week yeah, I think if we, again, take a step back and see society's expectations towards the economy and the corporate world have evolved, especially since um, the, um, the Great Recession, um, 2008 financial crisis. If you look at it, uh, we've had um, um, increase by some metrics on income inequality. We have had uh, political leaders come out who have championed reform in the way corporations are governed or the, uh, our current model of corporate governance is, uh, as well as you have new technologies coming to the fore, automation, AI, that are putting increasing pressures on segments of society. So. And again, you have a younger generation, um, particularly the millennials, who have certain values about um, the corporate world and the economy that they want reflected. So I guess this statement is a recognition or follows on to those trends and the CEOs are rec recognizing that the societal uh, expectations towards the economy and the corporate world have evolved and uh, they're perhaps addressing those uh, or making an attempt to address those evolving expectations through their uh, through the new statement that they should. I'm also curious. I mean, we are here in Canada, though, and these are American corporations that are uh, rethinking how they, they move forward, though. What is corporate governance like in Canada right now compared with what we typically see and think of in the United States? Well, broadly speaking, the idea of corporate governance in Canada and states is similar, that directors uh uh, manage um, uh, uh, directors oversee the corporation. They appoint the management and they set the overall strategy. Within that, they have a duty of uh, loyalty and duty of care, and they have to take uh, decisions in the best interests of the corporation. Where it differs and that between America and Canada is that when taking decisions, for example, in state in certain pivotal moments, they have a duty to maximize shareholder value. It's called the Revlon duty, like we discussed in the context of a merger or an acquisition transaction. In Canada, the duty is owed to the corporation at all times. You have to take interest, uh, decisions in the best interests of the corporation. In taking those decisions, you have to consider the interests of the stakeholders, the creditors, the communities. So 
in that context, this new statement kind of touches upon the model that we already have in Canada. Uh, broadly speaking, um, the key differences like we just mentioned, in Canada, the duty, I mean, you have to act in the best interests of the corporation at all times. In US, that is also the case. However, in certain limited contexts, you have a duty to maximize shareholder value. I'm curious because, you know, uh, we were talking just before the mics got a going, and it, you said that there is actually some interest about what's going on in the United States uh, right here in Vancouver. Tell me a little bit about why there is kind of this, people are paying attention to what's going on with regards to the way that corporate governance is going to be changing down south of the border. Well, um, principally speaking, U.S. is um, the, arguably the largest supplier of capital in the world. So if they decide to change the metrics and the standards by which they supply capital or, or their large pools of capital or, and the managers decide to change uh, the, their approach towards ca capital allocation, that impacts everyone, including Canada. Uh, on a second step, the, this new approach that the Business Roundtable has outlined, people, certain commentators have noticed the similarity between the approach that we already have in Canada. So there is obviously some interest because traditionally, historically, um, the trend is uh, new corporate law developments um, um, happen down south of the border and then they make their way up. Right. So uh, this time in certain quarters and the thought is that actually they're trying to maybe mimic what we have done already up north. And um, thirdly, within Canada and across the globe, there is an increasing focus on, in the corporate law terms, uh, it's called ESG, environmental and social governance models. And especially in Vancouver, we have some work being done on that. Toronto has some work done on that. And down in California, there's a fair bit of work being done on that. Uh, so in that context, people are increasingly paying attention uh, to the developments that are happening in America because uh, they correlate with the work that um, the, the researchers, the, uh, the practitioners are undertaking for their clients and in other fields in Canada and other places. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. I, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to squeeze an opinion out of you. Is this going to be good for corporate America moving forward? Well, uh, I'm going to have to be boring, and I'll give you an answer. Sure, sure. A very loyally answer. It depends. Okay. Uh, it, we have to see uh, long-term how this plays out. At this moment in time, this is a statement issued by a private organization. We have to see how this is implemented in, in the American jurisprudence, how the corporate law practitioners react to it, how the managers who are not from the largest companies react to it. So once we have some more evidence, then we should be able to uh, start making judgment. Okay, well, we'll wait a little while, maybe a couple months, a couple years, we'll, we'll get you back on and maybe there's some evidence that we can uh, hook at and see what's going on from there. Thanks so much. And that's Ravi Baines. He is an associate at Macmillan LLP. And that's it for the BIV Today podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us on the show. You can find our archives on Stitcher as well as Apple Podcasts. We'll be back tomorrow. I want to thank everyone for joining us on the show. 